0: Destro's back, and I am out of here. I'm Tom Panneries, and one last time, this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are. I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello, and welcome to the final episode of Origin Story a podcast mini-series brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I've been doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. I'm covering one last comic book this time around, and that is G.I. Joe number 69, which came out on November 17th, 1987. The cover, which is by Tony Sammons and Bob McCloud, shows Destro in a new uniform with a gold-colored face mask flanked by two iron grenadiers. All three of them, by the way, would be available as toys in the 1988 line of G.I. Joe action figures from Hasbro. It's one of those covers that would get someone's attention even if he or she hadn't been reading the comic for a little while because of Destro's new mask. I know that it got my attention because I'd stopped reading G.I. Joe a couple of months earlier, and at that time, Destro hadn't been in the comic for at least a full year, since issue 57. Our story is called Into the Breach, and our creative team is as follows. Larry Hama, writer. Tommy Sammons, pencils. Randy Emberlin, inks. Bob Sharon, color. Joe Rosen, letter. Bob Harris, editor. And Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. We opened in Rio Vista, which is the capital of Sierra Gordo. Psych out Hawk and Roadblock are driving through the streets and are under attack from looters and rioters who are protesting the United States presence in the country. Apparently, the government has been overthrown, and the new government is not only hostile to the United States, but it has rejected Cobra. Looters are running in and out of the American embassy, and one of them tries to burn an American flag, to which Roadblock responds with pointing his huge freaking gun at this guy and daring him to do it. Needless to say, this guy does not burn the flag. They head into the embassy, and after getting admonished by the ambassador, they go to a file room to sanitize what's in there. Meanwhile, in another part of the country, the Sierra do military attacks a Cobra terror drone. From a chopper above, General Villavaca, head of the military, observes and talks to Destro, who is demonstrating his weapons capability. Inside the drum, Zarana finally decides to evacuate, but not before launching the Firebat in hopes that it will provide enough of a distraction for her and the rest of the Dreadnoughts to make an escape. They make that escape, and Destro destroys the Firebat from his chopper. At the embassy, the Joes continue to sanitize the building, the Ambassadors taking too much time, and Roblox is setting up the place to blow. Villavacca shows up with tanks and the Joes head outside, but then they blow up the building as a diversion to escape. They head to the airport where Wild Bill is waiting to take them away in the C-130. Unfortunately, Zerana and the Dreadnoughts show up right before the Joe team does with the Sierra Gordeaux military hot on their trail. Zerana takes Wild Bill hostage and forces him to take off. Hawk, Psychout, and Roblock show up on the airstrip and have no idea what's going on. They're fired upon by Villavaca's troops, but then a, gu- a group of counter-revolutionaries whom the United States had been supporting shows up and starts firing on the Sierra Gordo army. They help the Joes out of the situation and then out of the country while Hawk wonders aloud how they got such weaponry. On the back to on the way back to uh, Riolindo, Villavaca and a uh, representative. From Destro's company, talk about how Destro will be providing weapons to Vilvaka's troops and will help drive out what he refers to as quote the North American Banana Monopoly. In Real Lindo, Destro talks to one of his men about how he is working both sides for profit and how they and then they both don new uniforms, gold plated armor for Destro, and an iron grenadier uniform for his troops. So I have a story behind my purchasing this comic, and I think that story actually makes it a bit of a cheat, because while I bought the comic and read the comic, I actually gave it to someone else after I read it, and it didn't stay in my comic book collection. I was in the fifth grade at this point, and I'd stopped reading comics a good two months before this came out. Moreover, I didn't buy this from the comic book store, and instead bought it from Greaves Stationery, the same place I had bought some of the other comics that I had covered early on in this podcast. And I bought this in early December, nearly a month after it had hit the shelves. I wasn't as interested in G.I. Joe or G.I. Joe Comics as much anymore. But toward early December, my class decided to do a secret Santa thing, and my dad and I were at the Greaves on... One day, and I saw the comic uh, on the rack. And like I said, when I described the cover, it was definitely noticeable. Destro hadn't been in the comics for the better part of a year. Not in in any capacity. So here was a brand new uniform. It was right on the cover. I wasn't sure if the guy whom I'd picked for Secret Santa liked G.I. Joe or the comics. But I figured that at least it was something less disposable than a candy bar or baseball cards. Incidentally, later on, the guy had for Secret Santa, my friend Chris would become one of my best friends, and he would buy me copies of X-Men number 1, Spawn No. 1 in the early 1990s, and then he'd get me started on my brief phase of collecting both X-Men and the early Image books. So buying this book for this podcast or using this book for this podcast is kind of a cheat, but it's a bit of a bridge between my two phases of comic collecting, which makes it a pretty good setup for this particular episode. The comic itself is as solid as anything else that Larry Hama has written. It builds off a couple of things from the issues just prior to it, which I did go back and read in the trade paperback that I own. And the major uh, thing you need to know is that the purpose of the Cobra Terror was revealed in the previous issue. These things are, of course, military forces, fortresses, but they also transmit some sort of brainwave modulator that makes people afraid and then causes them to turn on one another. This is demonstrated in the country in issue 67, and then in issue 68, the Joes and the Cobras have a huge tank and snow vehicle battle, at the end of which we discover that the Joes has successfully revealed the truth behind the Terror drums to the world. So that's what's causing such a panic in Sierra Godot at the beginning of the issue. From what I recall, and if I'm being inaccurate here, I apologize, I'm doing this off the top of my head from the few Joe issues that I've owned over the years and I've read. Sierra Gordo is a Latin American country that, up until the revelation in the previous issue, Cobra had a decent amount of influence and control over. I think it's also the in-universe stand-in for either Nicaragua or El Salvador or Panama. Those are three Central American countries the United States was involved in in some way in the 80s. Nicaragua, at least as far as 87 is concerned, is probably the best bet here, considering that La Marijama has several that Hama has several characters mentioned North American banana no- monopolies, and you get a leftist government being backed by Cobra while the Joes are backing a rebel or a Contra force. It's a decent allegory anyway, and like I said, if you were a kid who paid enough attention to either the news or action movies, you at least had a passing knowledge, maybe, of Nicaragua and knew who at least the Sandinistas and the Contras were. But even if you didn't, these had some pretty cool stuff happen. Cobra and the Joes are in the middle of a country in chaos. It's a setup for a storyline that would continue in the next issue, which was Zorata taking Wild Bill hostage on the C-130. The new-look Destro on the cover was a bit of a cheap fake-out. Yes, we see that Destro is put on new armor by the end of the issue, but it's not some huge reveal or anything like that. It's him talking to one of his guys and saying, Hey, we've got new armor! What would have been cooler would have been a more classic comic book trope. Someone who represents Destro is talking to Villavaca about the weapons he's selling and keeps referring to the boss. And then we see that at the end that it's the all-new Destro. At the same time, that would have completely negated the cover and you would have had to do something with it or done a classic blacked-out figure, which is another classic comic trope. It's not something you see with G.I. Joe a lot, by the way. I do like that Destro is returning to his original purpose in the comic, which is that of an arms dealer. From what I understand in both the comic and the cartoon, he never really was fully part of the Cobra Crusade, but instead of was a supplier who, at the t- as time went on, got deeper and deeper into the Cobra cause, as his relationship with Cobra Commander and the Baroness grew. Then in 57, it seemed like it was all over, and even here we have a story where he's not really working for Cobra, but just for himself, so I'm curious to see where this goes. The Joe's mission in this history is a simple cleanup job on the now-evacuated American embassy in Sierra Gordeaux. This seems like one of those CIA-type covert ops that you wouldn't expect to find costume soldiers taking on, but that's where we are. The scene with the American flag is humorous, as is the bit with the American ambassador chiding them for being so bold and then roadblocked blowing up the building. The chase to the airport and the kidnapping of Wild Bill gives the story enough action and tension, so we have a good cliffhanger. Tony Sammons is not an artist I was familiar with. I looked him up. It seems that he had kind of a journeyman's career as an artist, including a number of issues of G.I. Joe. It's a solid artwork job, although there's a weird look to the pencils and ink, which I think might have to do with the remastering that IDW did for the trade, more than the actual art of the comic. It's a good book, though, and I recommend picking up This, or if you find the classic G.I. Joe trade, this is volume seven. Uh, I would recommend that. I've got the first seven uh, G.I. Joe trades from IDW. I intend on getting the others. I found a number of them in cheap trade bins at comic shows in my LCS, and a number of them are available on Amazon or in-stock trades for relatively cheap. But there is one more question I think that's left to be answered. If I enjoyed this issue, why didn't I keep reading? Why did I stop with comics and G.I. Joe? And I'll get to that after this. (laughs) ¶¶ beginning in 2018 the who's who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the loose leaf editions featuring superman by jerry ordway the joker by brian bolland wonder woman by george perez sandman by mike dringenberg badman by norm brayfogle the jli by adam hughes Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest? Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are fucking kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who Podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. So, this is it. Like I said, when I planned this series out, I wasn't sure if I wanted to put G.I. Joe number 69 on this list because it was not a comic I kept even if I bought and read it. But I put it on the list because when I thought about it, the book represents something really important about my comics collecting career and my childhood as a whole. Not the end of it, mind you, that's way too dramatic, but a symbol of the beginning of the end? Childhood, I've realized over the years, doesn't necessarily end in a clear-cut way. It's not like you wake up one day and declare yourself to be a young adult. While there did come a time where I packaged up many of my old toys and gave them away, it's not like I did it all in one fell swoop and and then immediately put on a flannel shirt and began listening to morose alt-rock. Childhood fades. You play with some things one day and then the next, you find yourself staring at a girl in your class for way too long and having conversations that involve the debate over the meaning of the word like. The time between buying issue 66 of G.I. Joe and buying issue 69 of the book was roughly three months, and as I mentioned, I was in the fifth grade. As fifth grade wore on, my interests started to diverge a little more. By the time I hit the end of the school year, I would be paying a little more attention to what was then called the WWF, and would be reading all I could about baseball. Plus, I would get one particular present for my 11th birthday that would completely change things, and that was the Nintendo Entertainment System. Nintendo was something that had, by the time I got it in 1988, been out for three years, and i have been asking my parents for it for at least a year. And that would get more intense as we got closer to my birthday, especially after my friends started getting them, and I started playing video games at their houses more and more. But before Nintendo, there was a vacation that I was convinced for a couple of years was a factor in my leaving comics behind. That was in August when my parents took us to New Hampshire. They had family friends who owned cabins on Keyser Lake, which is in the extremely small town of North Sutton. It's about, what, 10 or 15 minutes away from Lake Sunapee. Anyway, this had become an annual vacation, and my parents still go there 30 years later we went up there to mid to late August of uh, 1987, with the exception of one or two comics that I bought after we got back, I really wasn't interested in comics after that. And to blame New Hampshire for my fading interest in comics is completely crazy. And when you're a kid though you tend to rationalize things and connect dots that aren't there like that. When I went in 1991, a full year into my current comics collected career, I was honestly worried that I would come back and not be interested in reading Batman or the New Titans anymore because in fact that in 1987 I had given it all up. When I returned to hitting the comic store the regular in the summer of fall of 91, I was relieved as if some curse had been broken or something. By the way, there's Like, a whole Rob Kelly Mountain Comics type of story in here with me in New Hampshire for the, oh, six or seven years that I went. But that's for another day. Back to Nintendo. I would say that the video games were definitely a factor as I was playing them more than I played with toys. But I think that my abandoning comics in the fall of 1987 was due to the actual comics that I was collecting. I'm not going to be dismissive by saying that G.I. Joe and Transformers were kids stuff, but there's at least a kernel of truth to that, because I was playing with the toys, reading the comics, and watching the cartoon at the same time. The comic would be the first to go, and then over the course of late 1987 and early 1988, the toys and the cartoon would go as well. I'll have to check the date, but I'm pretty sure that at some point in late 87. WPIX showed G.I. Joe the movie, which is pretty much the end of the cartoon series that Sunbow had started back in 83 or 84. I knew that the Transformers had a season after the movie in late 86, but I don't think G.I. Joe had another season after their movie. There was a series that Dick produced at some point in the late 80s, uh, Operation something or other. I don't think I saw much of it and seem to remember it not being very, very good. The last wave of toys for me, with the exception of a couple of random figures in late 1988, was the wave that was out for Christmas in 1987. While I can't tell you everything that I had, I knew that I got the Cobra Sea Ray, the Cobra Wolf, the Cobra La figure set, and the Slaughter's Marauders figure set. By the time the spring semester of fifth grade rolled around, my attention would still be on action and science fiction, but it would shift toward watching aliens all the time. In fact, had I been able to find alien toys at the time, I would have been all over them. But I couldn't. So, And I know they came out of the toy line at some point, but it was just not, not anything that I found. Closest I ever got to like something outside of aliens was the Commodore 64 video game that my friend Evan had. So, And we always thought it was cool because... They had the line that um, Sigourney Weaver says to the Alien Queen, uncensored. And we're like, wow, a curse in a video game. Anyway, my focus was on Nintendo games. And my first Nintendo games were Super Mario Brothers. Duck Hunt. It was a double game cartridge because it came part of the action set, which is the set I got because it had the zapper in it. That was followed by Kung Fu and Pinball. I never really had a... Uh, preference for any type of game though. My sister and I would play any game that looked interesting and we rented a ton of games from our local video store. In fact I love renting games from the video store because it meant we could just play something until we got tired of it and then we didn't have to worry about feeling bad that our parents spent more than $50 to buy something we either didn't like or we were sick of. Nintendo would actually fade as well especially since my parents uh, at least from my life Since my parents refused to buy us a Super Nintendo when it came out. We played the old Nintendo games from time to time in junior high and high school. And then my friends started getting Genesis and other systems. We'd go to their places to play those as teenagers and as college. But after that, I really didn't say very interested in video games. Aside from you know a few here and there. And if you kind of add all that up and consider everything I've talked about through the 33 episodes of this series. It wound up being my first lesson in how pop culture is cyclical. Things come and go and sometimes they come back again. If you' listening to a, if you listen to pop culture affidavit on the regular or you read the blog on the regular, you've heard me talk about that and you've heard me and seen me get nostalgic about many things. And while the phrase "oh, you're just going through a phase" is definitely condescending and, and quite a bit obnoxious if you think about it, there's some sort of truth to it. Take for instance music. Amanda and I have a pretty large CD collection. At final count before we both stopped buying CDs and it was just downloading stuff from iTunes or listening to it on Spotify or whatever, our CD collection was about 700 to about 800 CDs. And there's definitely music in there that says I was clearly going through a phase. I mean, it's definitely a way to explain why I own ska music from the late 90s. And I will bust out some of those albums from time to time for the sake of that nostalgia. That was the purpose of this show, at least at first. I'd realized that my original comics collection was from exactly 30 years ago, and how cool would it be to rewind, but also remember what it was like when I was 10. I figured that I'd like a number of the books, but beyond that would not really get much into them. It's not exactly the opposite of that, but I will say that there are a few books I want to keep on reading, the primary one being G.I. Joe. I want to... um, and I've got a lot of stuff to read from there because I really only read about maybe a year and a half to two years of Joe thoroughly. So I can go all the way back to trade number one and read for it and then keep going, uh, starting at trade eight and beyond. The, um, the Punisher stuff, I think I might check out beyond issue four, at least when Marvel decides to put the 87 series on Marvel Unlimited, which I'm hoping it does soon, especially since a Punisher series, TV series is coming out. And Spidey? I have a lot of Spidey I want to read. I wonder if things would have been different had I been reading something else instead of these books, though. Perhaps if I had been reading The X-Men or kept reading Spider-Man past Craven's Last Hunt, they would have not been as ephemeral to me. There certainly were events that I could have latched onto. Marvel had The Fall of the Mutants, DC had Millennium, all right, maybe not so much with Millennium, but you get the point. Whereas I read some mainstream DC and Marvel books, the stories were isolated enough that I could read them on their own and not worry about the larger story or the larger universe. That, by the way, is what would keep me interested in 1990. Yes, Batman got me back into comics, but it was the idea of a larger DC universe that kept me there. Years ago, on the blog, I wrote how a friend of mine was offloading his comics, and I wound up with a copy of Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12. And that book enthralled me, and I went back and got the entire series. And then in 1991, Armageddon 2001 came out, which along with the Titans hunt was the biggest thing for me. And that was exactly what I needed because everything went from there. Plus, I think because in 1990 I was going 12 going on 13 instead of 9 going on 10, things appear more concrete. At least I was able to hold on to them for a longer period of time. I've watched Brett progress through a number of things. Thomas the Tank Engine, SpongeBob SquarePants. And I've seen some stuff stick around, and I've seen some stuff just go. So I'm anxious to see how things will play out as he gets older. Or, Quite frankly see if there will be a point where his interest and my interests diverge. I'm not sure if my parents' generation had the same conversation about introducing our kids to pop culture the way that my generation does with each other. And if they did, I can imagine it was in smaller doses maybe? Back in August, I did an episode about The Princess Bride, and Amanda Broyles and I talked about how both of us first saw the movie when we were young. And how even though we see its value as a full-fledged film for adults, there's something about seeing it for the first time when you're a kid and before you become like jaded and start thinking that things are stupid. You know, in that bratty way you say when you're trying to look cool. And this leads to an honest dilemma as a parent. How much do you force upon your kid and how much do you let them discover for yourself? For themselves? And where do you draw the line at, you're too young for that and this is terrible, why are you watching it? The answer to that last question is sometimes easy. For instance, it will be a cold day in hell before I pay cash money to see the Emoji Movie. And if Brett starts listening to Nickelback, I'm going to burn this motherfucker to the ground. Seriously, though. If he never shows interest in, oh, I don't know, Star Trek or The Lord of the Rings, should I drop that stuff in his lap and say, you will consume this or I will make you consume this? Am I the only father out there who feels like I'm one false move from living out that Harry Chapin song? My son turned 10 just the other day He said, thanks for the ball, dad, come on, let's play Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today I got a lot to do, he said, that's okay And then he walked away, but his smile never dipped And said, I'm gonna be like him you know, I'm gonna be like him. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when we'll get together then. You know, we'll have a good time then. I'm in uncharted territory. I find myself trying to get more current because my son is entering the demographic mainstream, while I'm also trying to worry about having to be current because, honestly, I don't have the time to go to every movie or Netflix every show or even keep up with every comic book out there. Plus, I'm not that much into the idea of popular culture and entertainment becoming, you know, work. And I shouldn't be overthinking it like this, but come on, after 33 episodes, you should know how uptight I am and how this is basically what I do, going with the flow can sometimes be my biggest problem. But as I put these comics back on the shelf and back in the long boxes, I want to close it all out by saying that I've enjoyed putting this series together. I liked getting out of tracking, I liked getting out or tracking down my old comic books. I really enjoyed writing some of that rambling craziness that took up half of many of the episodes. It actually reminded me of why I liked writing blog posts for Pop Culture Affidavit, and I've been doing that more often, especially as my podcast load becomes lesser and lesser with the end of this series and the coming of the end of In Country. But before I go, I have some thanks to give. To Aaron Henley, who sent me a copy of The Punisher number no. 1, to Michael Bailey, who sent me a number of those Marvel Age issues, and thanks, of course, to all of you whom I hope have been listening. If you want to hear more of my stuff, you can find me at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is on the same feed as this podcast and can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. I'm also taking an issue by issue look at the NOM on my show In Country, which is part of the Two True Freaks Network. And once a month, you can hear me and Stella talk about literature on Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which you can find at Required Reading with Tom and Stella.com. If you want to leave feedback for this show, you can also go to the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. You can email me at popcultureaffidavit.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thank you, thank you, thank you again to listening to all 33 episodes, if you have, of this series. It's been a lot of fun, and as always, thanks for listening and take care. Oh,